0: was precious that was wonderful worship um, and that was a wonderful prayer um, it, 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 it it just reflected in my mind those words of peter where else can we go where else can we go before christ alone has the words of eternal life and uh, thank you steve thank you worship team that was precious I know it's been said a couple of times, but happy Mother's Day. And I, I, um, I pray you'll have a blessed day, that you'll be spoilt, and mums, that you will know the absolute treasure and the gift that you really are. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I reflected upon this the other day, and, and I realised, well, the, the first... The first expression of God's love towards me in this world was expressed to me through my mother's eyes as I was laid in her arms as I was born. You know, and she cradled me as your mother cradled you. And what I don't remember, I know from experience that every time those arms have embraced me they brought comfort they brought strength they brought assurance they brought safety they brought so much to my life over and over again and as i've grown as a as a child as a young man now as an older man you know i've watched From near and from far as those same arms have done so much in this world and so much in people's lives and I've been impressed and I've been in awe of this woman that I call mum because she has never stopped, never stopped reaching out those arms to the important ones in her life and only that to those who have made demands upon her throughout her life and I know now, even now when I look at that and I try and amass that and and try and measure that and bring some worth to that, I know even now in these days in her life that those arms are still there to cradle me and that's what's that's what I say thank you for because she will and she will express to her to her dying breath the love for her children and the strength of her life has been given to her to embrace them and I say thank you mum and I pray that all of you mums will be blessed today um, Steve said, "Steve said, we're continuing on in our series um, in personal revival. <clears throat> this word revival, I've, I've, I've said it many times in the past few weeks, this word revival is from the Hebrew word, ha, I, can't, I can't speak the Hebrew word, you know that, but it's, ha, I can't do it. It means to live. You got to you got to know I practice that. I was driving into the church this morning and I was practicing that. I was trying to get my guttural happening, my Jewish on, but I'm sorry to all you. Proficient in the language, I can't do it, but I know what it means, and it means to live, it means to life, it means to bring back to life, it means to sustain in life, it means to live again. It is the renewal unto spiritual life, it is a spiritual awakening, and while spiritual revival, please let me say this, while spiritual revival may historically have happened and swept through Churches and swept through communities, indeed, has even swept through nations. It always, please understand this it is always, always God sovereign, sovereignly moving through the individual. It may be 100,000 people, but it's always personal revival. It's always between you and your God. It's always what your God wants to bring to life in your life. And what God intends to do through you as his vessel, as he makes you alive. He, he brings you back to the vibrancy of that first love that you had when you discovered the wonderful Savior, the glorious Savior, who saved your souls and brought great purpose into your life and it's that first love being burst again into into life to touch not only your life but all of those around you it starts it's the believer who knows they need It's, it's it's the believer who has become content as I've said with a stagnant compromised powerless Christian life The believer who is no longer turning away from unrighteousness but is now finding themselves becoming comfortable in the very things that they know that God has saved them from, that God has delivered them from. They're no longer sharing their faith. They're no longer in the Word. They're no longer in prayer. They're wordless. They're prayerless. They need to live again. They need to discover the mightiness of God in their lives. They need revival. Now, before we continue on, I, I, I want to qualify some things because people have been contacting me during the week and I've had conversations with people that essentially have been asking me, well, what, what is revival to me? You know? And it's a really good question because there are lots of different views or differing views on the subject in the world, especially in the world today. So let me tell you, I thought I would begin, and I don't want to I don't want to be all negative, but I want to tell you what I what what I'm not talking about. You know? You know what I'm not talking about? I'm not talking about setting aside a few nights with an invited evangelist or special speaker and calling it a revival. I'm not talking about setting up a special time. Where we might come together and seek the Lord for spiritual awakening. All good and well to do these things. But that's not what I'm talking about here. It's not what we're looking for. It's not what I'm looking for. And I've got to tell you, I am not talking about what we have seen in more recent times. With the likes of the so-called Brownsville revival in 95. 95 which was pretty much modelled upon the so-called Toronto Blessing Revival, which began the year earlier in 1994, which I believe was taken from events that were happening in Argentina the year before that. And I believe according to the official record, and I don't mean to be facetious about this, but I believe according to the, the official record, those revivals began with a slapping of someone's hands. What do I mean by that? Well, let me quote to you, John Arnett, who's the pastor of the Toronto uh, Airport Vineyard Church, who speaks of the beginning of those so-called revivals. He said this, we were most powerfully, now he's talking about a visit that he made to, to churches in Argentina. And he says, we were most powerfully touched at the meetings and we left them knowing something had been imparted to us. He says, Carol, my wife, who always receives from God easily, was so powerfully touched by the Spirit, she couldn't walk anymore. I had always had more difficulty in receiving. At one point, Claudio, who I guess was one of the evangelists of that church, singled me out and said, do you want this anointing? Oh, yes, I want it, all right, I answered. Then take it. He, he, he slapped my outreach hands. I, I will take it, I said. Something clicked in my heart in that moment. It was though I heard the Lord say, for goodness sake, you take it. Take it. It is yours. And so by the slapping of someone's hands, he received this revival he took it back to his church in Canada and then people would visit his church and they would receive it there and take it back to their church. Now the identifying characteristics of that so-called revival, it was identified by what you would refer to as extraordinary physical manifestations. People would laugh, un- laugh uncontrollably. They would roll around on the floor, they would cry, they would moan, they would wail, they would bark like dogs, they would roar like lions, they would flap their arms and fly around, run around the auditorium like a bird, amongst other things that were purported to be the moving of God's spirit. Now the benchmark of this so-called revival was people being drunk in the spirit, stumbling around, unable to string together a few words... And that was what it looked like. And so this opened up the door for what I can only describe as other charlatans, people like Todd Bentley and the so-called Lakeland revival, where it just got more and more outlandish. And now today the big noise in the revival world is a fellow by the name of Bill Johnson from the Bethel Church in California who runs revival conferences through his church and the idea is that they teach that revival or actually their identifying mark of revival is simply and purely the manifestation of miracles. If there's no manifestation of miracles according to their dogma, then there is no revival. And so they teach people in their revival conferences to be able to perform miracles that they might bring about revival And they have hundreds of these schools around the world, including here in Australia. Now I say all that to draw your attention to my statement last week that was I long for revival. I long for revival. I so much wanted in my own life. I so much want it in your lives. I so much want it in our church. I so much want it moving throughout our nation. I so much want to see God's family live again by the power of God's Holy Spirit. But I'm not looking for the machine of modern Christianity. Because that's what I was just describing to you. I'm not looking for this machine of modern Christianity. Excuse me. I'm not looking to generate anything in and of myself... I'm longing for the quickening of life being imparted by the visitation of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ to make us live again. That's what I long for. Duncan Campbell, I have to go back a few years, preached in the revival in the Hebrides, islands off of Scotland, there, back in 1949 for about three years in the midst of this incredible move of God said this, then I would like to make it perfectly clear what I understand of revival. When I speak of revival, I'm not thinking about high pressured evangelism. I'm not thinking of crusades or of special efforts convened and organized by men. That is not my mind at all. Revival is something altogether different from evangelism at its highest level. Revival is the moving of God in the community and suddenly the community becomes God conscious before a word is even said by any man or represented by any human effort. What I view as revival... Is what I reviewed, referred to as last week when I started talking about normal Christianity, albeit normal Christianity at an intensified level. I think that there's a fellow named um, Tim Keller who's been around for a while and I think he has it right. or I think he does when he says this biblical revival is not so much the operation of the extraordinary, but the intensification of the ordinary operation of the Holy Spirit. And that being, he's talking about the conviction of sin. He's talking about the giving of God's great assurance as to who we are in Christ and what Christ is promising to do in and through us according to his revealed word. He's talking about the work of sanctification. He's talking about the conversion of sinners. He says when revival takes place, biblical revival takes place, sleeping Christians wake up. Sleeping Christians wake up, nominal Christians get converted. People sitting in the church most of their lives and they don't even realise that they're not really saved at all. They don't really understand the gospel and the power of the gospel. They're working in the church, they're serving in the church, they're upstanding, upright citizens and all of that. But they're not really saved and the spirit of God falls upon their hearts and nominal Christians come to life. In a born-again experience, something they've never known. And beyond that, it's the wonderful thing truly is that those hard-to-reach, resistant unbelievers that you thought you would never get to, God dramatically saved them. This, This is revival. This is what my heart longs for. This is what the prophets of old pleaded about or pleaded to God for. This is Isaiah crying out in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and that the mountains would tremble before you. This is the psalmist. Psalm 85 crying out, restore us, O Lord, or restore us again, O our God, our Saviour. This is what Josiah experienced. This is what Ezra experienced. This is what Nehemiah experienced in their day. And I believe we can experience in our day, in our lives personally. And not only in our lives personally, but in our church and in our community, in our entire nation. I believe God, as he has done before, has swept through this world, bringing revival, life-changing society. And he can do it again. And don't we need it? Don't we need it like every other generation before us needs it? And so that's what I mean. And last week when we were together, I closed with a quote. And let me begin with it again this morning so we can simply move forward. And it says, revival will always vitalize God's people. But revival is not always welcome. For many, the price is too high. There is no cheap grace in revival. It entails repudiation of self-satisfied complacency. Revival turns careless living into vital concern, exchanges life's indulgences for self-denial. Yet revival is not a miraculous visitation falling on an unprepared people like a bolt out of the blue. It comes when God's people earnestly want to be revived and that they're willing to pay the price. And that's what we've been looking at over the last three weeks. We've been asking ourselves over the past three weeks, do we really want to live again? Do we really want revival life? We know that God wants... We know God wants to bring spiritual awakening to us and to our nation. He doesn't want any of these children sleeping, especially in the days in which we live. So we asked the question, and this is where I repeat myself we asked the question, "What do we do?" And we found ourselves in that familiar verse, Second Chronicles, chapter seven and verse 14. For the Lord said, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and will heal their lands. And we realize the first thing that we need to truly do is to acknowledge whose people we are. We truly need to acknowledge in our own hearts and before the people around us, the world around us, that we serve and we love the God of the Bible, the God of truth. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And preparation for revival, as I've said, each week always starts in his presence, which means you, me, all of us, we need to be people of prayer. People of prayer. What what does that mean? What is people of prayer? It's people who humble themselves before God, before the God of truth. It's people who acknowledge their complete dependency on him. It's people who earnestly express their wholehearted desire for his presence. It's people who understand that they are encountering the the living God, the God of the universe. That's what people of prayer are. Again, it was Spurgeon that said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a, a graceometer, he said. And from it we may judge of the amount of divine working amongst a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, then one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Jim Simbala, uh, who wrote the Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, um, spoke of a visitor that came to his church I believe he said it was an Australian actually who came to his church one morning and he invited him up onto the the, the podium to share to the people and he got up and he simply said, you can tell how popular church is by how many people come on a Sunday morning and you can tell how popular the pastor is by how many people come on a Sunday night but you can tell how popular Jesus is by how many people come to the prayer meeting. I read that and I thought, oh... That we would be children of God, so in love with Jesus Christ, that we would earnestly, wholeheartedly desire his presence, his purpose and his blessing for all of our lives. And in particular, that we would be a people that are crying out to him for revival that we always be, be praying for that fresh infusion of divine life for both ourselves and for the people of God around us. And know this, know this, knowing that in this, with this heart, knowing that with this desire to be in the presence of God, knowing that this God of the universe who knows every detail about our lives, knowing that this is the God who searches us and knows us, knowing that this is the God of heaven and earth, knowing that such prayer will always draw the sanctifying light or the sanctifying gaze of God's Holy Spirit. And he would begin his reviving work in our hearts by bringing powerful conviction upon our lives and changing us. Prayer, conviction, repentance... Sin is confessed, repentance is embraced, and restoration is pursued. These are the hallmarks of true biblical revival. Look, I know I have been repeating these things every single week for three weeks now, but I repeat them with purpose. In fact, I repeat them with grave concern. Grave concern for our condition. For the condition of Christ's bride. Why? Because Christ is coming back for his bride. And we believe he's coming back so very soon. And until that day, we are either moving towards him or we are drifting away from him. We are either hungering and thirsting after him and his glory... Or we are straying off into our own self-serving forms of idolatry. Nobody wants to hear this anymore. Nobody wants to hear that said from the pulpit. Nobody wants to be told that. But this is where revival is born. When we realize our state, when we realize our condition before a holy God, forget about what's happening In and around us, it's the fact that we are in the presence of a holy God. And until that day that that holy God calls me into his presence, I want to be moving towards him. I don't want to be drifting away from him. Christian, if we are not alive... If we're not living for Jesus Christ, then we are moving from serving him towards having him serve us. And that terrifies me because I see so much of it in the psyche of the Western Christian church. The pulpits are spewing out messages all about how to have a happy life. This week, seven ways to a happy life. Next week, seven ways to an even happier life. And it just goes on and on and on. And soon enough, you realise, hey, the only reason you're there after you've had your pep talk is that your purpose there is to provide for the church coffers. Where is the cross of Jesus? Where is the atoning sacrifice? Where is the terrifying reality of hell that awaits all the Christ-rejecting world? Where is it? I can only conclude that the lack of gospel-centered preaching is coming from a lack of gospel-centered living. I can only conclude that. Because if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the heart and soul of your life, believer... You can't help but tell people about Jesus. You can't help but tell people about Jesus and his wonderful salvation that saves the souls of sinful men. His wonderful salvation that sets people free from the wages of their sin. That wonderful salvation that lifts us from the mire of this world into heavenly realms to know that indeed God lives and he sits upon the throne and he has purpose for every breath that I have in this world destiny is set in our hearts it's our spiritual pulse or should i say it's our spiritual impulse and it has to get out it won't stay in there if you're alive in christ you cannot keep it in what did jeremiah say In Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9, he said, His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I can't keep it in. Every believer needs resurrection life, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, alive and active within our hearts and within our lives. And we have to be honest, every one of us, there is an ever-increasing spiritual atrophy taking place within the church of Christ today. And it is a reproach against the great gospel message that saves, transforms, and glorifies sinful people. Which brings me to today's message. A revived Christian, a revived church, recaptures the love of the gospel message. When God starts his fire in your heart, you love the gospel of Jesus Christ with a fervency that cannot be quenched. Look, forget about... Look, forget about... People barking, growling and roaring. Forget about people st- supposedly stumbling around, drunk in the spirit, so drunk that are unable to uh, string together two, tr- two transmittable words, let alone, let alone be able to speak or speak like I can't speak right now, but let alone be able to bring a gospel message that is able to save the soul of a person. Just contrast that. Look, I'm leaving that. Just contrast that with spirit-inspired preaching of men such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield and John Wesley who preached in the great awakenings of the 1800s. You couldn't stop them. You couldn't stop them from preaching the gospel, the blood-soaked gospel message that saves men's souls. That Duncan Campbell that I referred to preaching in the 1940s and 1950s there in the Hebrides Islands, this is what it was said of him. It said there was nothing complicated about Duncan's preaching. It was fearless and uncompromising. He exposed sin in its ugliness and he dwelt at length on the consequences of living and dying without Christ with a penetrating gaze on the congregation and perspiration streaming down his face. He set before men and women the way of death. It was a solemn thought to him that the eternity of the hearer might turn upon his faithfulness. He was standing before his fellow man in Christ's stead and could be neither perfunctory nor formal. His words were not just a repetition of accumulated ideas, but the expression of his whole being. He gave the impression of preaching with his entire personality, not merely his voice. Did that grab your heart? I tell you, it mine when I read it. <sighs> Again, it's been noted that revival is accompanied by the gospel preached with renewed passion, boldness and effectiveness, seeing people brought into the kingdom of God. And when this happens... And the church begins to see it and experience it. They fall in love with the gospel. And yes, they can't keep it in. There is an awe surround the importance, surrounding the importance of God's word. And with it, an awareness that as servants of the Most High God, and now I'm talking about every single believer, an awareness as being servants of the Most High God, no one can be flippant or reckless in handling the precious Word that saves souls. They can't be. And 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 it's in that awesomeness... The awesomeness of a child of God that the spirit of God is working in. That the enormity of the awareness that people all around them are dying without Christ. And this gospel that sits in their hearts. This gospel that sits in their hearts has the very power of God. The very power of God's salvation flowing through it. To see them delivered from death and hell and brought into eternal life. And it drives people. They love it so much. They love to hear it spoken. They love to hear it come from their own hearts. They love to see people sit in awe as they watch the power of God's spirit bringing life where there was once death, lifting people from the mire into the presence of a living God to see their hearts birth forth into exalting praise because God lives and God has saved them. The gospel message becomes everything. Everything. Is it any wonder... Is it any wonder that you read that his words were not just of repetition, of accumulated ideas, but the very expression of his whole being? Because Christ has become everything. For in true revival, Christian believers are spiritually awakened and full of a God-centered, Bible-saturated, spirit-filled life. And it has to come out. It has to come out. You begin to realize. You begin to see Jesus and the urgency. You begin to look at the events surrounding the cross. You begin to see his determination to get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That nothing would stop him, knowing that the only thing that awaited him was that he would be arrested, crucified, lift up on that cross, but also that on the third day he would rise in resurrection life. And all who would place their faith in him would know that salvation and would know that same eternity being born in their hearts. You look at Jesus, you begin to see the power of those days, the wonder of those days. You begin to stand in the upper room with the disciples and you see Jesus and you hear Jesus bringing in the new covenant in his blood. It it, it amazes you. It brings awe to your heart and you walk with him through that, that last night. That dusty night as you walk through the streets under that full moon, leaving the ancient city of Jerusalem, making your way down into the Kidron Valley, over into the base of the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and you watch Jesus enter into that place of incredible passion. And you see it, and you hear it, and you know that he... The very Son of God cried out, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If there is no other way, no other way that sinful man, no other way than the atoning sacrifice of Christ's perfect life, given in exchange for sinful man, if there's no other way for man to be saved, with that urgency in his heart, it's translated into our existence and we live in this world and we see there's no other way for my brother, there's no other other way for my mother there's no other way for my sister there's no other way for those lost people to be saved than to understand that Christ has died for them and you can't keep it in and the gospel becomes the most powerful thing in your life because it's the most powerful thing on the face of this planet it really is and we're going to understand we're going to find ourselves in God's word. And this is what revival will do. It will find you in his word. It will find you as his child discovering that God has yes saved you. But saved you from what? I, I don't think a lot of Christians even know it. He hasn't just saved you from going to hell. He hasn't just saved you from your sin. He saved you from himself. He saved you from the wrath of God against sinful men. The Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Jesus warned in John chapter 3 and verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon them. There is a day coming, people, when God will come. And he tells us in Isaiah chapter 26, when he comes, he's not coming to cuddle lambs and sit with children and tell bedtime stories. It tells us when he comes, he will come out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And he will, as it says in Ezekiel chapter 25, please hear this. He will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes, that they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. When was the last time you heard a message preached from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 17? Well, if you haven't stick around and come to our Bible studies, because we're plowing through Isaiah right now, we need to understand what we've been saved from. That is why we are told that we should, as Matthew tell in Matthew chapter ten, not fear those who can kill the body but cannot and cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. To be saved, you have to know what you are saved from. You're saved. Well, you're not saved from the devil. He's defeated. He's condemned. God, I'll say it again, is saving you from himself. He's saving you from himself He, in his perfect, holy righteousness, who is a just God, Can have no fellowship with anything less than his own perfect, holy, righteous standard. And that is why God, and this is when the gospel captures your heart. And that is why God himself came into this world and died in our place. That we might be able to come back into an eternal fellowship with him. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord it's then brothers and sisters it's then we understand the awesomeness of God's grace towards our rebellious souls what does Ephesians chapter 2 tell us for grace you have been saved in verse 8 through faith and not of yourself it is a gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast it's a gift of God that righteousness that holiness of God is is beyond our reach but God is promising to give it to us through himself Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 we know so well says if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall believe in your heart the God that has raised him from the dead then you shall be saved for with the heart a man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And we read in 2 Corinthians, For he made him who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he that is God made him that is Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might become holy. That we might become acceptable unto him. That we might be able to enter in to that perfect presence of a holy God. And we find ourselves in that place where we realise as the book of Acts cries out neither is there any salvation in any other name under heaven among given unto men whereby we must be saved I bring you those scriptures because when a heart is revived it can't abide in a compromised, reckless, throw any thought out there to keep people entertained handling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can't abide with it. There is a new appreciation for the gospel and a a fuller picture of what Christ has truly accomplished for us. In true biblical revival, Jesus is fully understood for who he is and all of his glory and all of his power and all of his majesty. He's no sideshow. He's no performer merely of miracles. He's God, the very God of heaven, who gave everything for us. And the effect is a transformation in a person, as I've said repeatedly over and over again, in a person, in a family, in a church, in a culture. And when this happens, Jesus is clearly presented as the powerful, almighty God that he really is. And then we take opportunities like this right now And we look upon the emblems of his crucifixion. And we recognize that the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And the body that was lifted up on that cross. So much more than simply a display of love. But the essence of it. The reality of it, the substance of it. God in heaven walking amongst us. God in heaven giving absolutely everything that He possibly can to convey to us the urgency of our situation, the need of our eternal souls. And so we take a cup and we see blood that was shed, divine blood that washes our very souls and we see the very body so abused and, 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 and so ridiculed and, and so brutalized by the very ones that that blood is shed for. We know it is our sin that put him there, but we know it was his heart of love for us that brought him here. Father in heaven, we thank you for dying for us. We thank you for walking on this planet and bringing, Lord, the reality of who you are. And just how vast the gap was between us and yourself and your hearts to desire to see us united, not united, but to see us as one in your presence throughout all eternity, discovering just the wonder of your mercy and your love and your compassion, your heart towards us pray father you would continue to birth this in our lives each and every day as we cry out to you father god fill us afresh with yourself father god pour the power of your spirit into our lives spirit of god make us live make us live again make us rejoice in in every moment of life knowing that you have given it to us for your purpose and your glory Father, take us from our selfish pursuits and bring us into that purpose of the divine, O precious God. Give us eyes to see the plight of our unsaved loved ones. Give us a heart, Lord, that will not restrain and would not hold back, but must deliver that life-giving gospel message. Father God, birth these things in us. Bring about your salvation. Bring revival, I pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. For the blood that was shed for us. Thank you, Father, for the body that was lifted up, the bread of life, that brings life eternal. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.